TT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Dr. Michael Shacklock will talk about his career and experience in aerodynamics. Dr. Michael proposed the term neurodynamics in 1995. He is the author of the international bestseller textbook Clinical Neurodynamics, and he is the founder of the Neurodynamics Solutions that offers courses all over the world. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to PT Pro Talk, Dr. Michael. How are you today? Oh, thank you for, for letting me come on your recording here. It's, I'm good, thank you. It's, I'm in Australia now. You're in Tennessee, USA, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Uh, and I'm in Australia, Adelaide. It's now looking, it's 9.30 in the morning approximately. The, the sun is shining. It's been a cool morning and uh, everything's fresh and I'm full of energy. Nice. And here's 7 p.m., so a little, a little different, <laughs> our time zones. Uh, and thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Such an honor have you here with all this huge experience that you have to share with us a little bit of your knowledge. So I uh, really appreciate that. So Dr. Michael, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how did you get to where you are right now? Mm, that's a good question. It's a long answer, but I'll keep it short. <laughs> um, well, first, I graduated in 1980 in New Zealand in the city of Auckland, which is the main city, the largest city in New Zealand in the north. I graduated from physical physiotherapy school there. Uh, at that time, it was a three-year diploma course, and now it's extended to masters, etc. Universities. Um, and I, in that time, I became really interested in manual therapy. Now, things have changed, of course, since then, and manual therapy is not quite uh, as a high-profile um, aspect of our profession. Um, but my feeling is it's, there are aspects that are still important, of course. And by being interested in manual therapy, it naturally extended to pretty much all musculoskeletal medicine, right through to exercises and how people move, diagnosis and treatment, etc. cetera. Um, so then I worked around hospitals in New Zealand, right, going from intensive care to burns units to rehab, geriatrics, all that sort of thing. And then I went to Australia in 1985 where I did the... Um, I applied for the postgraduate master's course there with uh, Jeff Maitland and Mark Jones and Pat Trott. And so that was, for me, a formative time, learning how to think, learning how to reason. Effectively, that was learning how to learn. And, and I've sort of applied a lot of the stuff I learned there uh, into neurodynamics. Now, I became interested in neurodynamics in the mid-1980s, and that was, to me, a whole new area. And it wasn't called neurodynamics then. It was called... Um, uh, neural tension, or, and later in 1991 with David Butler's book, it became neuromobilization or mobilization of the nervous system. And from then, I was, in, I was interested in developing the area further, and that's where I proposed in 1995 that it should be called neurodynamics. And uh, what's interesting is this year is the 25th anniversary of the birth of neurodynamics. Uh, wow. So this is a, a big year. Happy birthday, 25th anniversary, <laughs> neurodynamics. Uh, and so since then, I've been really interested in research, um, particularly um, how nerves move, because that's a fundamental skill that I think practitioners who deal with nerve problems uh, in the physical capacity anyway should be established. I think we should have skills in how nerves move. 
And right now we're looking at, we've just, of late, we've looked at um, validating certain mechanisms, which I'm very pleased to say we've successfully done. Uh, and we can talk about those at some point if necessary. Nice. That's amazing. Congratulations. 25 yeah. years. That's mm. a lot of experience. And I was just looking at your bio and I saw like how many books that you publish, uh, you author, co-author, and how many papers you publish, all of that is just stunning. And so, and also you've been an active clinician with like 35 years of experience. And I know that you like to combine both. So mm. could you tell us a little bit um, about that? Like how do you combine science and mm. your clinical practice and how that's important? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that is a cornerstone of clinical practice. And I think that if we, if we integrate evidence-based practice, which we should, um, or evidence-informed uh, clinical activities, um, we have to link science and clinical practice. Uh, the prob one of the problems in physical therapy, and it's attracted criticism, is that we have our own beliefs, but often they're not necessarily accurate or true. And that's not really scientific practice. And so, you know, as you know, things are changing. Uh, we apply things differently from before. Uh, and, and so for me, there's different layers and evidence-based practice would probably be, or evidence-informed practice would be one of the high or top layers. But underneath all that, um, my interest is connecting mechanisms to patient clinical features and changing mechanisms. Now, it, it, Patrick Wall, who had a huge influence on me in the 1990s, he said it nicely. He said, if we can change the right mechanism or if we can improve the right mechanism all the time, we'll always fix the patient. And it, it, clearly pain is more complex than one mechanism, of course, but if we can change the right mechanisms and the right patient in the right way, we'll help the patient. And so for me, um, one of the critical elements is how patients' symptoms behave in relation to movement and activity. So we, we know that nerves experience pressure when we have different postures and movements. And if someone has nerve pain with those postures and movements, if we change the way they move, change the force on nerve, then we may help their problem. And that's a very simple concept applying our knowledge of how nerves move with how their symptoms behave with movement. And that's clinical scientific. That's linking clinical practice and science. People have said neurodynamics, you know, is an art form, you know. If we think of it as a very complex set of movements, I guess that's not necessarily inaccurate. But in clinical practice, I think we are applying science creatively, which is not the same as being artistic. They integrate, but I reckon we need specifics. We need to do things accurately so we get accurate conclusions and then we migrate the treatment into more complex strategies. And the research... It looks like it's very practical. So something that you can really use on your practice, not just something theoretical that you can really apply. So I think that's, what the, that's the interesting part. You are really using all the research and applying on your day-to-day -day treatments, right? Um, I'm glad you think that because we have a lot of um, science in physical therapy, health, physical health sciences as well, um, that is measuring the minutiae 
tiny little measurements. Wow, yeah. this is important when actually it may not be. And we call that ivory tower science. Now there's a lot of that in our job and I'm, that's fine, but I'm particularly interested in making things practical. For example, we've now validated a new me a mechanism of unloading the, the, the lumber and nerve root uh, with the straight leg rays. Uh, and that that's is designed to help people get their own pain relief with ridiculous pain. And so to me, one of the most important aspects of science is, is giving benefit to the community. And hopefully um, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's all about giving our patients better results. So if you're doing something to prove that you can give better results in certain techniques, I think that's, that's what really matters, right? That's, the, that's why we are here, to help our patients. It so sure that should does. be our end goal. And why did you decide to start the neurodynamic solutions, your, your clinical neurodynamics education the, that you found? Uh, um, I started it because I felt that we had some really useful information and I wanted to have the opportunity to distribute it. Um, you know, information's not much value unless it's distributed. Uh, and so um, it kind of grew more than I expected and uh, it's kind of, it's given me another job, really. It's given me employment, which is, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> Being employed. Um, so basically, it was based on enthusiasm to distribute information that we, we, we were developing. And you have all over the world, right? I check on your website, you have people teaching, partners in like all over the world. I don't know how many yes, different do. countries. Oh, yeah, many countries, Sweden, um, Brazil, uh, South, other parts of South America, um, uh, Asia, United States, Canada, yeah, everywhere, Europe. That's amazing. That's amazing. Congratulations for your awesome job. Um, you. So now let's jump right to the neurodynamics. Um, so could you tell us more about um, how the nerves move and the implications for the clinical practice? Yeah, sure. Now, one of the, for me, one of the most important aspects of neurodynamics is that the clinician understands how nerves move. And if we don't do that, it's like looking at someone's knee and not knowing how the knee moves. Uh, so to me, movement is a critical part of our job. Uh, and so how nerves move is really important. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to talk a little bit about how nerves move and how we can uh, introduce those uh, concepts into clinical practice. Just a little mm -hmm. short, short presentation. So I'm going to okay. refer to my, 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 um, uh, keynote here. Um, first of all, perspective. I think all, all scientific knowledge has to be placed in a, in a balanced perspective. And so you took about Einstein's theory of relativity. Um, it's been validated in many, many different ways now. And But until recently, it hasn't been used much on a daily basis. But now with satellite navigation and, and space travel, it's become an important part of certain calculations in navigation uh, in, in outer space. And even GPS now has a little bit of uh, calculation in there to allow for Einstein's theory of relativity being validated, of course. Now, that's obviously a far greater magnitude than what I have here. But for me, neurodynamics is uh, the ideal position between musculoskeletal on one side and neurological on the other. And we know musculoskeletal can affect the, the, the peripheral nerve and the nerve root, for instance. We also know that neurological diseases can affect the peripheral nerve and nerve root. And so, and spinal cord, brain, etc. So for me, perspective is that um, neurodynamics is, is an integrated aspect between the musculoskeletal and the neurological. And, and so I wouldn't be saying we can fix people's multiple sclerosis with neuromobilization. It, that's ridiculous. 
Um, but I would, would be saying that if someone's nerve is hypersensitive and or lacks physical behavior or mechanical function, then moving that nerve appropriately might help both the mechanical function and the physiology of that nerve and therefore the symptomatology in the patient. And so that, to me, that's an important perspective. Now, within that, we need to be able to include or exclude neurodynamic problems with diagnosis. For me, this is not a case of selling neurodynamics. It's not a case of if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's a case of being balanced in, in relation to the patient, not being invested in a diagnosis, testing whether an abnormal neurodynamic situation exists, and excluding it or including it if necessary. And to me, that's a really important part of clinical practice, and that's called diagnosis, of course. If we get through to um, how nerves move near, we've got... We know that nerves, um, fortunately, have plenty of connective tissue in them. And if you look at the size of the cross-section of a peripheral nerve, um, and we take a, a sort of human example, if you palpate the peroneal or fib common fibular nerve around the um, neck of the fibula, it's actually quite large. But if you bring your hand posteriorly to around the knee into, uh, to palpate the tibial nerve, it's actually smaller. And that's a surprise because the tibial nerve innervates more area than the common fibular nerve. So we have a nerve that has, does less innervating, but it's bigger. And that, if we're thinking that the content of the nerve is only formed by the axons, uh, then it doesn't make sense. So we now know that the size of a nerve in cross-section is heavily influenced by the amount of connective tissue in the nerve and the amount of fat and blood vessels, et cetera, because normal nerves have a bit of fat in them. That goes to how nerves move in relation to how they conduct or transmit forces. Because nerves have a lot of connective tissue in them, they can transmit forces well. And so they, they have a, an ability to tolerate about 18 to 20% elongation before the connective tissues in the nerves start to fail. That means break. And um, in doing so, they can pass forces along the system at values lower than 18 to 22%. Anything below there, we apply force to a nerve longitudinally along its course, and it will draw nerve tissue from other areas. And, and so what we have is a system that can move based on application of tension forces. It can slide. It has an excursion mechanism. And um, what we also have is a, is a failure point. For instance, in neurodynamic testing, if, if we were to... I'll just see if you can see that. If we were to do a neurodynamic test like that, we know that that's quite a, a much longer position than that. Now, probably we're not really approaching 18 to 22% with that value. But if you take a clinical example of a fall where someone separates their shoulder from their neck in the fall, we call them a burner or a stinger um, in sport often or uh, falling off a motorcycle. If that's really severe, the nerve roots can be pulled off the spinal cord. And that's obviously a disaster clinically. Um, now, that probably goes beyond 18 to 22% elongation. But, or there's a case I consulted on recently. We're doing telehealth as well. And I, um, I consulted on a patient who um, had a hamstring injury. They ruptured their hamstring at sport. But it was such a severe injury that the hamstrings corrupted completely through and could not restrain more hip flexion. So they also ruptured their sciatic nerve. And that that is awful problem. They had neuropathic pain, paralysis, all sorts of things. And that's an example of probably that nerve went beyond 22% elongation. 
And so we have sort of general ideas about uh, how much we're elongating nerves, but precisely in the clinic with each patient, we still don't know exactly what's happening in terms of direct values. So nerves can tolerate tension, um, but only a certain amount. Then we come to sliding. Now sliding is important because the key point about sliding is that sliding prevents tension. So if, if I were to um, do this and that, that elongates the nerve from two different directions. So there's not much sliding at the elbow when that happens because there's an equal and opposite mechanism with nerve sliding. It's this way, then that way. So the balance is in between. And so elongation techniques produce very different physical forces and behaviors from sliding techniques. A slider technique, we apply force at one end with wrist extension and we, uh, we release it in another. So at the brachial plexus, we're going proximal, distal, proximal, distal. But in between with a tensioner, there's not much excursion at all. So we have a balance between more sliding, less force, and much more force, less sliding with different techniques. And so that's pretty much how nerves move in relation to sliding and tension. Um, and that relates to uh, all sorts of neurodynamic testing and treatment. If you have a patient who has severe pain and their nerve is really sensitive, typically they're provoked with tension techniques. So we often don't do those for someone who has a lot of pain. Instead, we'll often do a slider technique where we can move the nerve but without applying much force. The idea is like, it's, I suppose it could be called a massage technique from inside the nerve. It, it um, is thought to desensitize the nerve. Uh, that's a hypothesis, I might say. It's not being measured. Um, and uh, provide less pain with movement. So often sliders are used. Now, the problem with all this, though, is that um, if we just have a philosophical position, I do sliders because it helps my patients, I do tensioners for my athletes, then we are lacking something really important, which is an ability to distinguish which technique is the best for which patient and progress them from low to high functional levels based on the mechanics. And so what we need is a clinical scientific system which connects clinical features, pain and its behavior, with physical forces. And so we have progressions. So the low progression would be the slider and the higher progression would be the tensioner depending on how the patient presents. So how nerves move is important, how nerves move is important, but then how do we apply that to our patients? Because really knowledge is not much benefit without some benefit to the community, which means benefit to the patient. And so I would advocate people developing progressions from low to high functional levels, depending on the patient problem. And that relates directly to how nerves move. Now we're gonna go through to another mechanism of nerve movement, which is compression. Now. If I were to go for a walk, um, my hamstrings would contract and they press on the sciatic nerve. So if the sciatic nerve is here in the thigh, hamstrings press on the nerve and the nerve is displaced sideways. That's a perfectly normal movement and it's based on its response to compression. And, and so if I reach with my arm and I contract my hand, uh, pronator stabilizes my elbow and pronator presses on the median nerve at the elbow. Um, or if I bend my elbow to scratch the back of my neck, then flexion compresses the ulnar nerve in the cubital tunnel. And so as we, and, and also as I walk or stand, piriformis presses on the sciatic nerve in the buttock. These are all perfectly normal 
forces and behaviors, um, but they can become abnormal. Now in the musculoskeletal area, the most common cause of nerve problems is pressure. Radiculopathy is based heavily on pressure. Uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is heavily based on pressure. Pronated tunnel syndrome, um, uh, tarsal tunnel syndrome, etc. So um, even though as we move compression is, an, is normal, clinical problems develop when the pressure is, is above normal or excessive. And so uh, one of the things we can use clinically, to, it's got two aspects. We can actually teach the patient how to unload their nerve instead of loading it. So if we think of um, neural mobilization techniques, almost all of them apply force to nerve, but it's already forced on. So there's a problem with our logic. Uh, now the logic is at the moment, the nerve is forced on, let's apply force to the nerve through neural mobilization. Now that may produce adaptive responses. So in the long term, it could be beneficial. However, what about unloading the nerve for transient immediate pain relief? And so based on our understanding of how to apply force to nerve, we actually can reduce force on nerve and give them patient pain relief. And that is one of the early, most important things in an early acute severe pain. If people's pain can be relieved early, that's a great benefit to the patient. So one of the things we do would do is unload nerves and teach the patient how to do it. So instead of just applying force, we are, we are unloading nerves as well. And that's based on the principle of how to load nerves. Now, that's the first application. Second application is someone who has a high level of function they might have, um, say, a throwing sport or a kicking sport or a running sport. We'll take a, a throwing sport like baseball or, or something. Now, as they throw, their muscles contract severely, of course, strongly, and they apply force to nerve, and we'll say pronator for pronator tunnel syndrome, for instance. Now, they might have a small problem, and if you do a standard neurodynamic test for the median nerve of the elbow, it might be perfectly normal. However, that is not at the time when they've been practicing and repeating the movement and it's also not applying the force that they do during their functional activity. So the standard neurodynamic test would be under testing the baseball pitcher who has a small problem. Now for a baseball pitcher with a small problem, it can be a big problem because technique for them is critical. It's really important. And so if the, their pain during repeated movement is starting to intrude on their ability to produce the right technique that could be disaster so for me who doesn't who who doesn't doesn't play baseball and is not a pitcher it's not a problem for me i've probably got something that a baseball pitcher could not tolerate and so in that particular patient what we can do is place them in the relevant positional situation for their nerve and muscle by putting them in the neurodynamic test position and having them squeeze their pronator activate it onto their median nerve of the elbow while the nerve is under tension and compression. And that is probably a more accurate test for their problem that'll detect a really small element to the problem than a standard neurodynamic test. So uh, that's a, again, how nerves move and how we can apply force to nerves unload as well is a really important part of diagnosis. And, and we have a lot of literature now on standard neurodynamic testing, but that's, they're not suitable to everyone. Someone who has severe pain will not tolerate a standard neurodynamic test. But if someone has um, a, a minor pain at a high performance situation, standard neurodynamic tests are a waste of time for them and it could produce a false negative. 
which would then reduce the opportunity to treat the patient from a neurodynamic perspective. So to me, those are really important aspects of understanding how nerves move, but particularly for reproduction of the patient's relevant mechanisms and progressions. Yeah, so that was a lot of information. Let's see if I got something. So you first talked about the slide intention, right? That was a mechanism doing the, the, the tests and techniques. Is that correct? That's true, yes. And then the load and unload position that we just talked about. And then in the last thing, I was adding some, I don't know if I got it right, but like trying to put in a like more functional position or adding like a movement to try to be closer to the, the real situation that the, the, the patient feels the pain. So yes. to be a little more functional, to Absolutely, try to, yes. to, really, um, to really get the moment that the patient feels the pain and reproduce it and treat it correctly. So mm. that's a lot of different possibilities and um, views of these, uh, the nerves that I, I never thought about that before. So it was a lot of eye openers. Oh, good. So the, the thing, the, the, the sort of it's based on the, the, thing, the theme, which is applying science creatively. You can use, learn a standard test, but it's not going to be suitable for everyone. And so in, in the evidence-based movement, we have generalization. We're testing for generalizability, but at the same time, everyone has an element of uniqueness and specifics. And so if we just do a general treatment for a baseball pitcher, you're wasting your time. Uh, and, and so, uh, to me, specifics in certain people are really important. Yeah, and sometimes you just, because what I learned, it was the basic, the positions, medial nerve, radial nerve, onal nerve, and some uh, from the lower extremities, but just the basic things. I had no idea of like how, how many possibilities and options you had and different uh, ways to approach um, the nerves. So that was a good broad view. So if people are interested, for example, in taking the course, I am. So how you divide that? So you study like upper extremities and then lower extremities. It's practical. I think it was very nice, the idea of making this functional because I like the things very practical. So you are studying and applying and trying to help the patient in that situation. How do you put everything inside your, uh, the course that, that you teach? Uh, okay. Um, well, firstly, it's normally a four-day four lecture, uh, lecture and practical series. Um, we have, uh, it's about 40% theory and 60% lab or practical work, and we apply it to different regions. So the general principles are the same between upper and lower course, quarter, mm -hmm. extremities, um, but we apply um, to the specific anatomical uh, variations. So we know that the sciatic nerve in the buttock is, behaves differently from the median nerve in the elbow. And so we apply those principles to the region specifically. Okay. It's a manual diagnosis and treatment as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good. So I'm going to make sure to put like all the information on the show notes so people can find out more information about you, about uh, the cards and your amazing start with the neurodynamics. They can check out your bio like me that was like, oh my God, how many papers and uh, books and um, many things that you research and participating throughout your career. So I think that's amazing. And if people want to find out more information about you, where they can find it? Okay, so we have social media presence. We have um, uh, Neurodynamics at Instagram. We have uh, Neurodynamics on Twitter. That's our handle. Uh, Neurodynamic Solutions on Facebook. And um, 
uh, neurodynamics is not on Tinder, but I think it should be. <laughs> so, I, I, and also, uh, there's another one, neurodynamicsolutions.com. Okay, good. Uh, I think you just give us a little taste of neurodynamics. Now I'm interested in learning more about it. And I know probably many people are going to be, so um, that's amazing. And I just have three final questions for you. So the first one, what is your favorite resource of information? Do you have any mm. book or specific papers that you for like in particular? For, for neurodynamics? In general. In general, oh, okay, wow. Gosh, I, I'm not very good at um, focusing one thing in one place. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of independent learning. And, and, and so I'm not very good at reading a textbook because it, remember it's a summary uh, and it, textbooks are really important, but they are a summary. And, and so I'm, a, I'll go into the detail, but if you want to um, look for um, a resource for how to do neurodynamics on um, conflict of interest statement is that it's my book and I do receive a royalty. Yeah, that's what I was going uh, to uh, say. Uh, uh, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, it's, the, 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 the resource like clinical neurodynamics is my textbook on how to, um, how to do neurodynamics. It's a, it's a practical book with enough theory. You've also got the sensitive nervous system that David Butler wrote. That's, that's focusing on nerve movement and sensitivity issues. Uh, what else would, if you want to look at biomechanics of the nervous system, the Brieg, the Elf Brieg has done a lot of work on that, but that's not widely available. So if you're looking at books, you could go to clinical neurodynamics or the sensitive nervous system. And then within all that, gosh, there's a lot of research on biomechanics, how nerves move and sensitivity. So the peer-reviewed literature is where to go there. Actually, there's a study we did recently on validation of how to unload the lumbar nerve root um, with a series of validation studies. We have, um, if you look up, if you looked up spinal cord excursion, straight leg raise, you'll find our studies. What, okay. we've, what we've shown is that, that you, if you apply force on one nerve root in the lumbar region, the cord comes down and reduces force on the other one, on the opposite side. So we're using that as a, as a partly diagnostic, but also treatment, treatment approach. Um, you could also look up slump test, Shacklock um, on PubMed, and you'll find our studies on neurodynamic responses and unloading nerve roots. It's very interesting. A lot of sources of information, many from you. So watch our honor. Well, we are talking to the person that create all of the source of information, the books and everything. Um, well, there's other, there's other resources as well. There's Anina Schmidt's work on neuroinflammation. You've got Michelle Copper's work on sliders and tensioners and other biomechanical aspects. One of my favorite studies was his where they looked at sensitivity of neurodynamic testing in people with muscle pain and, and showed that when the muscle is inflamed or producing pain, the neurodynamic test is not abnormal, which is really good. Because if it's abnormal when it's only a muscle problem, that's a disaster. So it showed that when the muscle is, has acute pain, the neurodynamic test is normal. So that's perfect. That's a good study from a, a mechanisms perspective and, and so forth. So there's a lot of stuff out there. It's hard to be too specific. Very interesting. And what would be the best advice you can give to the clinicians that are starting their careers? You know, I was thinking about that this morning. And for me, be a lifelong learner. And fortunately, most of the, the, the clinicians that I'm involved with, 
they're naturally curious and engaged in their job, and it's a it's a natural progression to continue learning. So, it's not too that philosophy is not too difficult for people to engage in. Um, but it, I think that provides great reward. And physical therapy is generally a very happy profession. And I think it's because we care about others and um, we engage in healthy activity uh, and we like our job. Uh, and so to me, part of that is being a lifelong learner. Uh, the second thing I would say is connect yourself, if possible, to some a senior person in the profession and use, see if they can mentor you or spend, you can spend time with them. Um, because the research start showing, is now starting to show that people who are mentored produce better clinical outcomes than people who are not mentored. Mm. And so connect with someone who you trust, who's an, an expert in the area, but who does not have a vested interest in a specific aspect. So if you have someone who um, in particular likes iliosoas, you're going to learn everything about iliosoas, but it's not going to cause or be, a, be a basis for all your clinical practice. So you want someone who's um, pretty balanced and an expert in the area, in an area, and you might choose several mentors. So my feeling is connect with a really experienced, well-restricted person in the industry and, and, and try and learn from them. The third one is continue to be creative and independent thinker. Because what we're having now is a huge influx of research and people are now relying on research to determine what they do with their patient. But unfortunately, patients are much more complicated and we can on a daily basis interact with the patient with all the nuances that occur with a patient. And that to me is one of the most important things. How do you interact with the patient? And how do you be creative to solve their problem for them? And so it's about focusing on patient which are, who are very complicated, of course. Um, and so to me, being creative on the spot and an independent thinker and learner is really important. And I think every patient is different. So you have to have a different approach to each type of patient that you, when you, you start to have an experience, you already recognize that pattern, what works best with that type of mentality or type of behavior. And, and you have to adapt your, the language you use the, the, the treatment you use to try to feed the, the, patient's, um, the patient's need, right? So I think that's important. Always seeking knowledge. So sometimes people get one technique and then they settle and they don't want to do anything else or research. I think you have to be always open. You never know what's going to do next, what you're going to do, what your career is going to take you to. So mm. I think be open right to the next next step yeah, next course next absolutely. always be, be, be learning i've have heard about the mentor before and it was another super experienced clinician that told me that i was like that's you have the knowledge so it's the second time that i heard that and i think that's very important and a good idea if you have someone to guide you um, for your career. So being being awesome. mentor, being mentored is really important. And I, forgive me for being opportunistic, but we're also doing online mentoring with Neurodynamic Solutions. So if people want to do that, we can help them too. Okay, but, but good to me, know. It doesn't, you don't have to come to Neurodynamic Solutions, but attaching or connecting with a really experienced person who's well-respected in the industry profession is a really important part of professional development. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, last question. What personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to be a successful physical therapist? I think the first one is you have to care. If you don't care, you're not going to do your job. Patients are going to know. And the, the, the joke or the saying is 
people don't care how your patient doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care and so that that develops a good connection with your patient and they're going to give you much more accurate information that you could work much more constructively with so first of all you have to care you have to commit you have to be willing to make phone calls you have to be willing to, to do something for your patient to stimulate them into being motivated into self-solving their problem the other thing is um unfortunately you have to work hard <laughs> You have to accept that you've got to work hard in life. You know, happiness and professional success are not found, they are made. And so you have to make your professional life. Uh, that, that, that's, a, and that's learning, it's commitment, it's sacrifice. And unfortunately, you have to be happy with that. Um, and and the, the last one would be um, commitment, I think. Yeah, all true, all true. Yeah. I think the, the connection with the patient, that's all that matters. To be successful in your treatment, you have to have empathy with your patient, you have to care mm. and you have, and, and the patients feel that. And I think they engage on the treatment once they feel that you're doing your best, you're trying to really help them and do the best you can, the best your abilities and knowledge to help them. So I think yes. that's super important. So Dr. Michael, I really enjoy our conversation here. Um, I learn a lot of different things. Uh, I'm very excited uh, to understand and study more about neurodynamics. I think that's a super important topic that sometimes um, people don't talk a lot about. There's a lot of manual therapy, a lot of like these um, other techniques and certifications that are more common on the our outpatient world. And I think neurodynamic is very important and I hope that more people are interested in learning more and studying about that. So I hope you can spread the word and, and bring information to these, these physical therapists. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all your experience and knowledge. Um, I'm really honored to have you here. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.